0: I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic,
1: that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the sea, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge
0: the duties of the office on which I am about to enter.
1: So help
2: me God. So help me God. So help me God. So help me God. Welcome to The Oath. I'm Chuck Rosenberg, and I am honored to be your host for another thoughtful conversation with a fascinating guest. Tony Williams grew up as one of eight children in the Los Angeles home of Lewis and Virginia Williams. Adopted at the age of four by the Williams family, Tony had a self-described circuitous path that took him from the Air Force to Yale College and then to Harvard Law School. Tony had a deep background in public policy and financial control issues but a relatively brief connection to the District of Columbia as its first chief financial officer. In that role, he rescued the city from fiscal ruin. In 1998, Tony was quite literally drafted to run for mayor. Remarkably, he won two terms as mayor and led Washington, D.C. from the depths of overwhelming deficits and entrenched mismanagement to the heights of financial stability and civic success. Tony Williams was one of the best and most successful mayors in U.S. history. He has a deep appreciation for the virtues of cities, a clear plan for how to run a complex enterprise, and a deep reverence for public service. Tony Williams, welcome to The Oath.
0: Pleasure to be here, Chuck. Great program up until this point.
2: Well, it may well be a great program even after this point. Well,
0: okay, we'll see. But happy to be here, and I've listened to the show. Wonderful guests. Great program. Proud of you.
2: Thank you, my friend. Tell me where you grew up.
0: I grew up in uh, what is called the West Adams neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. It's probably one of the oldest neighborhoods in L.A. And it became in the 50s an African-American neighborhood. So the West Adams neighborhood really changed after the uh, ruling by the Supreme Court, Shelley versus Kramer. All of our deeds of houses, homes that we own, have these various clauses in them that are called covenants and servitudes. And under the law, they can do a lot of different things. They can say you can't have bikes in the driveway, you can't keep your garage door open, all different things, purely constitutional. But one thing you can't do that Supreme Court ruled in 1948 was you can't, in one of these clauses, restrict the property as to race. Now it would be broader than simply race, but then it was race, and that was what Shelley versus Kramer was about. And when you could no longer restrict your property as to race, it didn't really solve the problem of segregation. It just rearranged a lot of the deck chairs, and as the deck chairs were getting rearranged, you had out-migration of a lot of inner-city properties like the neighborhood of West Adams in L.A. One of the things I witnessed was like uh, we've seen in many communities around the country, An interstate highway was put right through uh, the neighborhood, but it was a very robust, vibrant, great neighborhood with beautiful old craftsman houses. It was a great place to grow up. It really was. My parents did a wonderful job raising us.
2: Talk about your parents.
0: So I always like to say that I got to where I am because of the civil rights movement and government doing the right thing. And loving parents who adopted me at an early age, about four, four and a half years old, I came to the Williams family. And my dad was a decorated military officer out of World War II. His name was Lewis. He had two bronze stars. He was a captain in World War II. To be an African-American, get two bronze stars and be a captain in World War II is a big deal because I figure he probably was discounted for one of those medals, I'm sure, you know, discrimination. On account of race. Right. My dad was really dedicated to raising his family. He worked in the post office for, I don't know, 35 years. He probably took one day off sick leave. He was very rigorous about vacation. I think that was because he was, one, a dedicated person, but I also think it was because he had eight kids at home and he probably wanted to get out of the house. But my dad really taught me a lot about determination and conviction. My dad died in 1998, so I was the independent CFO of D.C. He had been reading about that. My dad, you know, always thought I was kind of a walking debris field and kind of a inattentive at a lot of points. But he had a lot of faith in me. I could hear him talking to my mother sometimes at night. He had a lot of faith and belief that I would be something big. And when I was wrong, my dad would call me Anthony. When I was okay, he would call me Tony. And when I was really, in, really in a groove, he would say Tone. And the last time I saw him, he says, hey, Tone. So that was a good point. You knew he was happy with Yeah, you. yeah, yeah, he was happy with Tone. How about your mom? You know, my mom is known around D.C. She uh, was kind of really the de facto first lady, and my wife, Diane, would readily concede this. She relished the role of being kind of my better half in terms of she loved to talk on the phone. She was a real people person. Being mayor of D.C., one of the disabilities I had was, you know, I had a dad who had been raised in St. Paul, Minnesota. My dad probably made about... I don't know, five phone calls his entire life, well, coming into politics and not liking to talk to people on the phone is not a good thing. So my mom really compensated for that. My mom loved people. She never met a stranger. You know, people like Bill Clinton loved my mother because she was just such an exuberant person. And one of the reasons my mother was such a spectacular person was she had a singing career. She had sung in choruses, community orchestras. She was growing up, she made money for our family. By singing at everything from weddings to bar mitzvahs, I'm not kidding, all over the place in the L.A. area, uh, she would sing uh, recitals and whatnot to make money for our family. If she were s- sitting here talking to you now, she would be talking and then she'd break into a song and then she'd reference another song and sing that and then start talking again. That's I grew up with that kind of mother. Imagine that. Our house was a kind of rolling opera
2: I never had the pleasure of meeting your father, but I had the pleasure of meeting your mom. And if I remember correctly, she sang at your inauguration. She
0: did. All verses i never heard of, of the uh, Negro National Anthem my mother sang. All 18 verses, or whatever it is. Even in her later years, she had a spectacular voice. She really did, yeah. She was a great lady, my mom. So she really imbued in me a real belief in public service, that government can be a force for good, that belief is a good thing. So she was a great motivator in that way, yeah.
2: You said that they adopted you at about the age of four, four and a half. Mm -hmm. Did you ever find out anything about your biological parents?
0: Well, really not until recently, because growing up, I felt that my parents were such uh, loving parents. Again, I was not the most mild-mannered child growing up. I got into trouble a lot, but none of my brothers and sisters ever, not once, which is really amazing, brought up me being adopted. So... And certainly my parents did and it, with just one occasion. So I thought, you know, I'm not going to embarrass my mom. I'm not going to embarrass my dad. I'm not one of these people because this is my dad and me. I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to be on TV talking about my long lost mother and oh, I'm crying where she's, you know, it's a suck it up. It is what it is. But, you know, now that both of my parents have died, I kind of thought about it. And so I did DNA and I figured that, well, you know, I'll find out. My biological mother is, you know, maybe she—I'm in the West Adams neighborhood. Maybe she's from Burbank or something. Well, I find out, lo and behold, my mother was uh, from Turkey or Armenia, which is a big leap. But I think I might try to, you know, visit the village or something. You're still processing that. Yeah, it's a lot to process because you're talking about different religions, languages, cultures, civilizations. I mean, again, like I'm saying, it's not like another part of town. I mean, it's a whole lot to get your arms around.
2: And what about your biological father?
0: Don't know. I really don't know. There's, a, you know, again, I haven't really poked in there. Uh, Part of the reason I haven't poked in there is because I was mistreated at some point growing up before I was adopted by the Williams. Uh, So probably part of me doesn't really want to go there, you know.
2: Mistreated in what way, Tony?
0: I think it was neglected, uh, not really properly cared for. Uh, When I came to the Williams family, for whatever reason, they say I didn't talk. There were a lot of issues like that going on, you know, so there was some trauma going on because I'm clearly not a shy person, but I clearly had trouble early on communicating that, God bless my adopted parents and teachers, I clearly have gotten over because I don't have any problem talking to people.
2: You thrived. I mean, you ended up going to Yale College and Harvard for both the graduate Mm -hmm. school and law school. You Mm -hmm. clearly thrived. Uh, But the path to that was uh, somewhat circuitous. Is that fair?
0: I always like to say I took the county roads and the scenic route. And a lot of my colleagues were taking the interstate. And I got on the interstate and kind of passed a lot of people. But, yeah, I was slow at the beginning.
2: You said that before you got on the interstate, you took a bunch of scenic routes. Would you describe that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I uh, went to a great uh, high school. My parents sent me to a school called Loyola High School, which was a very prestigious School in L.A., probably one of the oldest, if not the oldest school in L.A. You know, great training, and I did well in school. I ended up going to the University of Santa Clara, where I was the uh, freshman class vice president a sophomore class president. I remember I left office early as sophomore class president because of some—I forget the reason why, but there was some social issue involved that I was protesting— But I was so involved in all these various student politics and and activities, I wasn't really uh, involved enough in my academic.
2: Your grades had suffered?
0: My grades had suffered at the end of that second year. I had a very high draft number, so I had no worry about getting drafted. But I had a friend who had a lower draft number. He decided to enlist in the Air Force. And I told him, well, look, let me go with you to make sure they don't snooker you. I went with him to the Air Force uh, recruiting office, and I started talking to the recruiter as my friend's representative, and I ended up joining, and he ended up not. And uh, I ended up in the Air Force, and I love the Air Force because one of the things my dad did to entertain us growing up is he always took us to the beach pretty much three or four days each week during the summer, and he would sleep at the beach and let the lifeguards kind of watch us, you know, we'd eat sandwiches with the sand and the sandwich and the sand between the kernels and the corn and all that. And we had, it was a great growing up and you know then a couple of days you go to camp or something. And then another thing he always did that was low budget, uh, to entertain us in addition to camping around, which really had an influence going around the country camping places, he uh, had this big thing about taking us to the airport and we would watch planes take off. This was before, you know, all the security and 9-11. You could walk right up to the fence and watch these beautiful planes taken off. So I loved airplanes. And my first job in the Air Force, I was uh, working in a command post as an aide to the battle staff and the people in the command post. You know, the movies where the, you know, low ranking person with a squeegee on the board ranking the status, that's me you know, when handing the memos out. And I had a great time in the Air Force, and I got an appointment to the Air Force Academy, and I was ready to go to the Air Force Academy. Where
2: were you stationed at
0: first? I volunteered to go to Vietnam, but I was posted in Myrtle Beach, I must admit, which is not exactly heavy lifting. And then I served in Colorado Springs, went to the Air Force Academy prep school. Because my grades at Santa Clara had been bad, I did very well at the prep school. I got an appointment to the Air Force Academy. But then, as part of my scenic tour, I decided that and i I really believed this at the time. i don't i would I can say I believe the same way now, and I'd love to talk about it, but uh I declared myself a conscience subjector. so on the way to getting a judgment on that, I served at a uh air base in California called Castle Air Base, which was the training base for Strategic Air Command.
2: That's interesting to me, Tony, because you had served honorably in the Air Force. You had graduated from the Air Force Academy prep school. You had right. an appointment to the Air Force Academy. I
0: right I was a student officer, cadet officer. I was, I did well in the Air Force, yeah. I loved yeah. the Air Force. I, and one of my biggest regrets was leaving. So when I got out, anyway, when I got out of the service, I felt it was – even though I got out later, I could have gotten out just on an early out because it was toward the end now of the Vietnam period. They had an early out program. I worked for a year with – a. Uh, Handicap uh, blind children at the place called the Foundation for the Junior Blind. I felt it was important to kind of have a full term of service at some level. And I still believe that it's important for people to serve their country in some way, maybe not in the military, but in some way, again, that's larger than their own personal needs. Uh, I got accepted to Yale. I went to Yale as an undergraduate. I was involved in a lot of student activities. And then... But you took a leave. uh, To sell maps. So I had a friend who had a, uh, one of the big world's biggest collections, or certainly the country's biggest collection, of 19th century rare, uh, rare maps. We had a business selling these, uh, this collection of uh, old maps. Business didn't do very well because we did a good job of curating the maps. I did particularly love curating maps and learning everything about the maps. It's just not enough people wanted to buy the maps, which is a key part of business. I went back to Yale, and I got involved uh, then in politics of New Haven government. That was a point where I would say I got back on the interstate.
2: As a student at Yale, you were actually elected to the New Haven Board of Aldermen.
0: Right. President pro tem, the vice president, if you will, of the Board of Aldermen and chair of a major committee. I didn't represent the Yale campus. I represented a regular neighborhood, a distressed neighborhood. And I learned a lot about government, public policy from that experience, from mentors I had, like Stan Greenberg. I took uh, his class, Politics of Divided Societies, and he felt that I was one of the students who actually understood what he was talking about. But then I got to know his uh, wife, Rosa DeLauro, because I served with Rosa DeLauro's mother, Louisa DeLauro. Uh, on the New Haven Board of Aldermen. So the Deloro family and the Greenberg family became good friends for a long time.
2: And Rosa Deloro, Stan Greenberg's wife, went on to become a congresswoman Absolutely.
0: from Connecticut. Absolutely. Her dad, her family were big supporters in the preservation of Worcester Square in New Haven. She served as Chris Dodds, chief of staff, and then went on to her own great career, yeah.
2: From uh, Yale, having uh, ultimately graduated, you went on to Harvard. Well, Why'd you go to Harvard?
0: Well, I'd done well as an undergraduate at Yale. I did really, you know, well grade-wise. And I had the opportunity to go to Yale Law School, but I felt that it was important to get out of New Haven because I didn't think I would do well in school while also in graduate school is different from undergraduate. I felt it'd be really hard to be a good graduate student and also be involved in local politics. So that's the reason why I left uh, New Haven. And I had the opportunity to go
2: Shortly after I was admitted to Harvard, I got another letter and said, well, we welcome you to our class of 1985. Um, There is a problem and we need you to uh, do what, Tony? Because you got the same letter.
0: Yeah, welcome. Uh, We look forward to your success, but to ensure your success, we really strongly advise, hint, 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 that you attend uh, math. It was some formal title, but essentially math for dummies.
2: That was a three-week workshop for those of us who had nothing beyond high school algebra.
0: That's right. That's right. So it was great.
2: Uh, I'm not sure that it really helped me. I'm quite positive it helped you. I recall um, one of my midterm grades in uh, operations research as the teacher was walking around the class and putting papers uh, face down in front of each student. I received mine and flipped it over in the top right-hand corner where the grade ought to be. It said, please see me. And I figured that was either really, really good or really, really bad. It turned out to be really, really bad.
0: No, but you know, what I learned from the uh, Kennedy School was really, really important was uh, how to uh, talk about uh, public policy issues, explain public policy issues, hire the right people to tackle these issues, understand these issues at the right level of management. And I think I did a great job in doing that. Another person who was really, I think, very, very supportive of me in a law school, I went on to be dean of Stanford Law School, Kathleen Sullivan, great professor, great litigator, appellate lawyer. I first met uh, Kathleen Sullivan because she was responsible for a litigation workshop where we had some mock trials or mock presentations, and she thought I did a good job.
2: At Harvard Law School? At
0: Harvard Law School, right. She was a professor at Harvard Law School.
2: Shortly after you graduated from um, Harvard Law School, uh, a law student just a few years behind you uh, came and paid you a visit. Who was that law student? And tell us about that visit.
0: So I had uh, yeah, I had, uh, graduated from law school. I had opportunity to work for a number of uh, you know, federal district judges. And I, uh, and I uh, decided to work for a judge in Boston. David Nelson was a real leader in Boston. He was instrumental in me getting the job at the Boston Redevelopment Authority. Where I thought I was taking time out until I practiced law, which I never went to do, as it turned out, but it has another story. So I'm sitting here in my office and I get a, a message that a student from Harvard Law School wants to visit me. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And then what's his name? And she goes, Barack Obama. I go, what? She goes, Barack Obama. I go, great. So, handsome young man comes in, very lithe, fit, you know, head on, and I think he had on a leather jacket, you know. Uh he comes in, he starts asking me all these questions about my background and what I did. And I was asking him.
2: You had not met him before. I
0: had never met him before. I was asking him, you know, where he was from. And he gave me the story of where he was from. And I'm thinking, oh, this is interesting. And uh, he tells me that he's interested in public service. And uh, that was Barack Obama. And I, th- I just thought, looking back in retrospect, amazing that he would have the presence of mind to go out because as I was sitting there talking, I could see I was just, it was, he was just totally absorbing everything I was saying. I think he, you know, good leaders are good listeners. It's a very, very good listener.
2: Had you seen Obama again later after he became president? A couple
0: instances before as a senator where we were at the same event. Uh, went to congratulate him after his breathtaking talk to the Democratic Convention. You know, history will show that he served our country honorably and with distinction. He's a real honorable man.
2: So first job out of law school was with the Boston Redevelopment Authority.
0: Right. And Stephen Coyle, uh, who was a Category 4 storm, I met when I came to the uh, BRA, and it took me about four or five months to figure out what Steve was about. And once I understood it and started applying it, I think the rest speaks for itself. He's totally results-oriented, a man of great compassion and incredible intellect.
2: Uh, After Boston, you had a similar post- in St. Louis?
0: My biggest accomplishment in St. Louis was I met my wife, Diane. So that's my ringing accomplishment in St. Louis. And I ran the community development agency in St. Louis. And I think the thing that St. Louis taught me was that there I was running an agency. I was reporting with a few of my colleagues directly to the mayor. I really felt directly the challenges that American cities face. St. Louis is a noble city. It's a beautiful city.
2: After St. Louis, you moved to Connecticut. What did you do there?
0: There I was the uh, chief appointed deputy to uh, the elected controller of the state. And on his behalf, kind of acted as my friend Bill Curry's chief of staff and general deputy managing the office for him. And I'd like to think that we put Bill in a position to run effectively as a gubernatorial candidate based on performance and accountability and fiscal stewardship. Uh, using that office as a platform to push those things. And I learned how to think about a financial office and protect a financial office in a political environment because, you know, Lowell Weicker, I'm sure we were... The uh, uh,
2: former uh, senator from Connecticut. Former
0: senator who was the governor. We were doing a lot of uh, oversight of his activities and he didn't take kindly to it. I'm sure would have liked to have had our office eliminated. I learned how an office like that should fend for itself, which was good training.
2: Training for what?
0: To become the first chief financial officer of the Department of Agriculture. Uh, First George Bush signed something called the CFO Act, which was to install in each federal department a CFO to act as a better fiscal financial steward of federal resources because certainly back in 1993, a big block of the federal budget Really couldn't be audited. That's really breathtaking when you think about it. How much land does the Forest Service actually own? What is the value of the improvements on the land? Couldn't really tell you. Well, that's all that's material, is very, very important. So you're basically getting auditors in 1993 to look at the federal government and say, you know what, I can't give you an opinion on this statement because I, I don't really know where to start. That's really bad. Now, the problem with the Department of Agriculture was that the Department of Agriculture was the fiefdom of Jamie Whitten, who was the all-powerful chairman of the House Appropriations Committee in the College of Cardinals. And he was over Department of Agriculture, and he did not like the CFO Act. So what I love about this story is the irony of irony. Here you have Jamie Whitten, who had been the patron of the Department of Agriculture. This is like blazing saddles in the first. CFO is this African-American guy from L.A. You can't make this up.
2: Witten was a member of the House from Mississippi.
0: From Mississippi for a long time. The people in the Department of Agriculture are wonderful people. I had a wonderful time working in the Clinton administration and help with uh, my friend George Munoz uh, in the Treasury Department and a guy named Ed DeSev who went on to OMB who is at HUD, to create the CFO console to coordinate the federal effort to improve its finances. I'm proud of that. Yeah.
2: You were the first CFO. So you're the one setting up the processes. You're the one who has to figure out what the priorities are. You've never been in the federal government. Uh, You've never been in the Department of Agriculture. You have no idea how much land they have or what the value of the improvements are. How do you start that process?
0: I've always been a big believer in strategic planning and team building and uh, breaking down huge problems into bite-sized chunks. And in the federal government, that's certainly very, very important. And I have heard a lot of your previous guests talk about this, and I would subscribe to what they're saying. Really respecting the people and the career staff of the federal departments and entering into an agreement with them. You know, for 80% of the things that you're doing, I'm supporting you. But I am the appointed leader and I'm gonna need your support on say twenty percent of the things we do, and I need your support, and you have that exchange, that's gonna work. If I come in and say, I want you to change everything you're doing, and everything you've been doing up to now makes no sense. That's not gonna work. And you've seen this in offices you've run in the federal government. You also can't come in and say, Well, hey guys, you know better than I do. I'm just here to cut ribbons. That's not what you're there for either. There's a tension there and there's a negotiation there, and if you get it right, you're gonna be successful federal official or state or local official. And if you don't, you'll be an abysmal failure.
2: As an aside, working at the Department of Agriculture was the first time you took the constitutional oath of office. Right, right. But you have an interesting view on the oath, and I'd love for you to share that.
0: Well, I think that, you know, when the federal offices and at the top state and local offices, you take an oath. But I'm of a belief that just as it's true that Not only law officers, but public officials, citizens in general, all have a duty to uphold the Constitution, not just law officers. They have a special role, but everybody has a role to observe and uphold the Constitution. While federal officials, you come into uh, justice or you come into DEA and you take an explicit oath, everybody in a way is taking an implicit oath when they assume these jobs. And it's just understood as part of the public trust and accountability that they hold
2: part of a compact between citizen and government. Absolutely, right. From the Department of Agriculture, Tony, you ended up working for then-D.C. Mayor Marion Barry as chief financial officer for the District of Columbia.
0: How'd you get that job? You know, I was looking for a real challenge. So a control board was formed by the Congress, which was acting as a state for D.C.
2: in that role. Why is a control board constituted?
0: A control board is constituted when the city in question can no longer go to the credit markets to finance its activities. It's like I'm a family. All my credit cards are overblown, and I I no longer have any credit. I need some extra help. A city no longer has access to credit. It can't finance its core responsibilities. It needs some help. Well, the only way you're going to get help is for your supervising authority, your state, to create a control board to manage your affairs, so that the additional money that's provided isn't basically wasted. And so a control board was created. They were looking for, as part of the act that created the control board, a strong, independent CFO. And that's a job that I applied for, and that's a job that I took on.
2: So not only were you the first CFO for the Department of Agriculture, you became the first CFO for the District of Columbia. That's correct. What is a control board, and how does it work?
0: In the private sector, when a company Uh, gets into financial duress, it can do one of two things. As you know, under bankruptcy law, it can essentially liquidate itself and the company's ended, or it can enter into what's called a reorganization, where under the Bankruptcy Act, the court can impose supervision, a kind of receiver, trustee, whatever you want to call it, to manage the affairs of the company until it gets back on its own feet on a restructured basis. Because there is a going concern there that can, that has a life after restructuring and bankruptcy. So the analogy is in the uh, government, government really can't liquidate itself because government has core responsibilities to meet, but it certainly can restructure. And the thinking is that under the right supervision, again, on an anti-democratic temporary basis, a board can come in, take responsibility for restructuring the government, its balance sheet, its financial affairs get it on a solid footing, and then turn it back over to elected government. That's what a control board is in the cities that I mentioned. And because of your
2: work as the chief financial officer for the District of Columbia and as mayor, the control board eventually dissolved itself and returned those authorities to you and your office.
0: So my good friend Alice Rivlin, who's no longer with us, uh, great director of OMB, vice chair of the Federal Reserve, and... At the time uh, we talk about here was the chairman of the control board uh, gave me back control of the government along the lines I've discussed uh, shortly before I took office, two years ahead of schedule. So it was great. When I was elected, I went and had a meeting with the control board and she made it clear that they were going to give me back the reins of government when I assumed office.
2: Tony, you've spent a lot of time talking about how government works and democratic processes, but the control board is fundamentally anti-democratic.
0: That's true. And I think when we, uh, as you know, when we set up our constitution at the federal level, we created some anti-democratic elements in it. I mean, the Senate isn't exactly democratic, certainly, because of its representation. Article three in the federal judiciary uh, certainly isn't directly democratic. Because there is a belief that in a democratic system, you need checks and balances and you need some controls that by their nature tend to be less democratic. And I happen to think that on a local level, while uh, ideally, in my opinion, you'd like to have some, frankly, less democratic features of local government. I happen to believe that fiscal stewardship ought ought to be a little bit immune from public whims than it is on local government across the country. Uh, What you found in Philadelphia, in New York, in Cleveland, and in D.C. is that all of us, George Voinovich, Eddie Rendell, Ed Koch, and yours truly, we saw our control board as a great opportunity. Here you had this kind of anti-democratic feature inserted into your normal course of business where some changes could be done on behalf of your people. Take advantage of that. Don't oppose that. Work in the kind of wake of that to create positive change.
2: And when I say anti-democratic, I don't necessarily mean bad. I just mean anti-democratic.
0: But it is anti-democratic, yeah. A lot of my jobs had really prepared me for this, and I had a lot of relationships that I had built up. I had good relationships with the Clinton administration, which strongly believed in the district's recovery, and uh, supported me in what I was doing. The control board was indispensable, and it supported people like Steve Harlan and Connie Newman, uh, enormously supportive of what I was trying to do, you know, which really made a difference. Washington, D.C. was created, and we founded the country you know, as a compromise between slavery and anti-slavery, strong federal government, weak federal government, getting uh, federal debt by the southern states and non-assumption, you know, all this between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. They agreed to locate the Capitol in Washington, D.C. When they located the Capitol in Washington, D.C., the way they designed it was to be a living, breathing example of democracy, So when I became mayor, I really took it seriously that I was a mayor at the turn of the century. I was a mayor now coming out of the control board. And I had an opportunity to, by rebuilding the district's institutions, of rebuilding the public realm. If you think about the public realm, it's this joint shared community space that you're trying to rebuild. Now, what's the core of the public realm? In my mind, it's about accountability, stewardship, faith in the future. And then it's about rebuilding the police department, public safety, you know, getting people to answer the phone and come to the counter, public services. And then you can start building other amenities in the greater city, public education. You can fund improvements and all the things that you've seen. But it started with restoring essentially full faith and credit that people believed again in the district.
1: Hi, everyone. It's Joy Reid, host of AM Joy on MSNBC. Did you know you can listen to AM Joy and all your favorite MSNBC shows as podcasts? You can catch up on The Beat with Ari Melber, The Rachel Maddow Show, The 11th Hour with Brian Williams, and more anytime on the go. Search for your favorite MSNBC shows wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe for free. Thanks for listening.
2: Your two terms as mayor were extraordinary in the history of the District of Columbia. But what was remarkable to me, Tony, was that you had lived in D.C. briefly. You had never held elective office in D.C. You hadn't really voted in D.C. You did a terrific job as the CFO of the Department of Agriculture, but that is not your typical breeding ground for D.C. mayor. How did you make that leap?
0: I was serving as a CFO. We had gotten restoration of our access to Wall Street, I think, in Which is a very big deal. Which is a big deal. That was in June of 1996, which was pretty much expected, although a big deal was made out of it because people just make a big deal out of controversy. You know, big deal. Fiscal chaos reigns in district. The district's audit is still not an unqualified opinion.
2: By unqualified opinion, Tony, you mean essentially a clean bill of health.
0: That's right. An A grade, exactly. So I had a press conference and I announced that we're going to have a clean audit for the next year. This would have been for fiscal year 1997, and if we didn't have a clean audit, I would resign. Everybody was like taken aback. And then I went back to my office and I told my people, now, I'm going to resign, but this isn't like an opera where I'm jumping off the building and you're watching. My last act before I resign is I'm firing all of you. So there really was an electric charge through our office to really get this job done. Now, what I really believe was that people were underestimating me, and saying there was more chaos than there was. And I actually believe we could. I really, was 70-30 that we could actually get this audit done. But because people had underestimated us, I really played on that. And so when we finally had a clean opinion in 1997 and we had a surplus, it was a big, big deal. And during the whole time I had been CFO, I had gone around the neighborhoods, and I had talked to all the neighborhoods about the problems that the district was facing. And I, you know, my corny metaphor I used was that we're a badly driven car on a bad road that's overloaded and underpowered. And I would say, you know, we're badly driven because we have to improve our management. We're overloaded because we've promised too many things by government and we have the resources to do. We're underpowered because we don't have all the resources at our disposal that we should because of the federal overlay and the lack of representation. And it's a hard road because it's hard being a city. It's just hard. And the control board is improving the finances. But citizens, these are the other things you need to do to see a full recovery of the district. And I would list the things, in my opinion. And I think after a year of going around saying this, people decided, well, if you— think this is what a full recovery is it's like the guy tells you what well, your transmission's out and you also need this and this he said, okay, go ahead and do that everybody says, okay, if these are all the other things you need to fix, go ahead and fix them you fix the finances, fix this.
2: But the gentleman who tells me what's wrong with my transmission doesn't become the CEO of General Motors.
0: That's true. But I get to fix the rest of your car is the analogy I'm using. So people allow me to fix the rest of the car or at least start the rebuild of the whole car.
2: There was actually a draft Tony Williams for mayor. There actually
0: was a draft Tony Williams movement from uh, Palisades in Northwest to uh, Hillcrest all the way down in southeast, east of the river.
2: When did you decide you would run for mayor? When did the draft Tony Williams for mayor movement click for you?
0: In June of 1998, late June of 1998. And the election was in November of 98.
2: So you gave yourself all of about five months. Yeah, you
0: know, you need you know, a good four or five months, yeah.
2: And how did you pull that off in four or five months?
0: Because I think the fact that we had—people could see that there was a trajectory of improvement and there was a belief in what, you know, I was able to do. And it was one of these elections. I had great competition from uh, some of the other candidates. They are all great people. But I think people believed in me. And, you know, it's an election where you come in with a strong base of support and— It's really hard to unshake that support, especially if you conduct yourself well and present yourself well, which I think I did.
2: And in November of 1998, you were elected mayor of Washington, D.C.
0: I had this notion of restoring this public realm, although I never really said that because it would sound ridiculous in public. But I, I had this notion of this is what I wanted to do, and I'm a big believer in build political capital. My notion was what are the 10, 15 things we could do that were quick wins to restore political capital. And then how could we build forward momentum in the district based on performance, not on politics and cronyism?
2: You said earlier it's hard being a city, which is undoubtedly true. It's also hard being a mayor. The things on your plate, transportation, jails, policing, schools, parks, sanitation, snow removal, I'm probably leaving 30 things off of that list. What do you do on day one, week one, month one? How do you get your arms around a task that large?
0: You create a set of things you want to accomplish, a map to get there. You try to hold people to account for that, not just in getting to goals, but also meeting their ethical and legal responsibilities. You know, find out a way to refresh this by talking to people outside, getting new ideas and creating this positive cycle. But to get all that going, I believe the first six months while you're starting all that, just find 10 things that people really care about that are low-hanging fruit and show that you can get the government to move. Like what? It sounds ridiculous now, not very sublime, but... One was reopening uh, Massachusetts Avenue. Mass Avenue was closed at Thomas Circle. They were within about two weeks of completing the project, but the project had been stalled because of a contract dispute. So it sat there for, you know, week, 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 week with traffic block while they were trying to work out this contract dispute and then do the last week or two weeks of work. So my brilliant idea was why don't we reopen the avenue even though we haven't finished the last two weeks of work. And then once we complete the contract negotiations, then we'll close it for a couple of days and do the last or whatever it is. Everybody thought that was just genius. Another example was we had a reputation for no one answering the phone. So we organized what is now 311. We organized a call center to improve customer service. So that's an example of showing people that. You know, the district has a commitment and is meeting its commitments. You can't just change the culture by announcing a new number.
2: How do you change the culture of an agency, an organization, or of a city?
0: In the city at large, I had citizen summits, which everybody laughed about and said were a joke, but thousands of people came to them and spent eight hours at them. We had four citizen summits where people came. And I spent eight hours talking about goals for the city, and I actually followed those goals. Well, that builds up belief in people. They actually see you following what you say you were going to do. That was with a broader community. I was really a, a person who would say the same thing in Southeast D.C. that I would say in Northwest D.C. Maybe sometimes it wasn't the most elegant. It certainly wasn't maybe the most emotional, but I would say the same thing to everyone. I always felt respected by all my people. Maybe I wasn't loved all the time, but I was respected. When you're mayor, your gold standard, in my mind, is being respected. You know, when you're up there, Chuck, where you are at the federal level, you guys are up, you know, on the 777, and you're looking for the Grey Poupon and the caviar and the champagne. When you're the mayor, you're down, right down in a covered wagon. You know what I mean? It, I mean, it's like rough. It's like tough because in in the citizen's mind, you're responsible for everything except war and peace. They even ask you questions about Social Security. You know, you don't have anything to do with Social Security. In their mind, you're responsible for everything. The person, one point of contact for government.
2: At the city level or county level or municipal level, this is where people contact their government. So the citizen summits frankly strike me as a great idea, and they obviously worked. But then you have to deliver How do you ensure that you're delivering? How do you know that the things you've tasked out to this large municipal bureaucracy are actually being done?
0: People say that when you're the appointed person in a regular government agency where the vast majority of people are career service, that no one pays attention to you and they ignore you. I don't believe that. I, again, I believe that you enter in a negotiation with your career people. And the negotiation is thus. I recognize that a lot of what you do is really kind of the accretion and the accumulation of practices that you all have learned and that are important and have been going on for decades. I'm going to continue to support that. And as a matter of fact, as the district gets better, I'm going to work with you all for better offices because a lot of them were in horrible office facilities. I'm going to support you against public protests when you want to go to legitimate, worthwhile conferences or when you want to get additional training. I'm going to support you for all that. Now, what I need in exchange from you is I am the elected official, and I am steering this in my own incremental way, to be honest, and I'm going to need your support on one or two or three things, and that's a bargain we have to have. And I think if you have that bargain down the line, you with your appointed officials, each appointed officials with their next tier, and you work down the system— it makes a difference. The other thing we had in D.C. that was very effective was in exchange for better pay, a lot of our top managers accepted more flexibility in terms of performance. So that also helped rejuvenate the system. And I encourage that on other uh, governments as well. So, you know, that middle management in the federal government would be the career service, SCS, in exchange for more flexibility by management, got better pay and benefits. And that's a good exchange, I think.
2: DC went from being an impoverished city with a junk bond status rating on Wall Street to being one of the great success stories in the United States.
0: We've had a pretty much a constant upturn now from around $500 million accumulated deficit to when I left office, I think it was about a billion five accumulated surplus Uh, We still had and still have one of the highest cash reserves of any government period, certainly in the United States. So in terms of reserves for a rainy day and very, very sound fiscal stewardship in that, one of the things the district has been very, very uh, judicious about, and I applaud my fellow citizens, is keeping the CFO's office strong. We went from junk bond rating now to AAA investment grade rating. That's a breathtaking climb. And
2: it saves a ton of money for the city because the borrowing costs are driven down.
0: Where the district is under the stewardship of our latest CFO, Nat Gandhi, immigrant, he comes here with nothing. I appointed Nat as one of my deputies when I was CFO, appointed him CFO, really did a lot of this work in the, you know, down in the engine room of uh, finances of D.C. government. And now Jeff DeWitt put us on a path now where the district is really going to be able to fund its own capital. So, yeah, talk about saving money. That's huge. These are schools for our students. These are police cars for our law enforcement personnel. These are parks for our children. All these are important. They're libraries. Now, we've gone from most of the libraries shuttered and decrepit to some of the best neighborhood libraries in the United States.
2: One criticism, and I want your take on whether it is a fair criticism, is that this growth, this stunning growth, has led to a gentrification and that lower-income residents are forced out of the city and out of their home. Is that true, and is that a fair criticism?
0: The good side of the new investment is that when you go from junk bond rating to investment grade to financial standing that the district has, this surplus creation of public good and wealth is gone too. rebuilding our human service agencies in D.C., rebuilding our schools in D.C., which go to our poorest and our neediest residents in D.C. This is because we revive the economy and the finances of the district.
2: That's the upside.
0: That's the upside. The other upside is when I ride on the bus and they're all mix of incomes on the bus, that's the good side. The downside is, yes, there has been displacement, particularly by rental properties being, quote-unquote, flipped. I'm not a big fan, though, of you know going before the tribunal... In confessing for my sins. I think we did what we had to do to improve the district's finances, but I am a big believer in learning lessons from the past so that as we continue to bring new investment, we minimize as much as possible displacement and see that everyone in the district is able to enjoy the new growth.
2: Of all the things on a mayor's plate, and there are many, policing has to take up a lot of your time. Talk about um, your police chief and your approach to policing as mayor of Washington, D.C. There
0: are really a number of people who were involved in the crime reduction in D.C. and better policing in D.C. And I would start with Steve Harlan and the control board and really giving us the resources to begin rebuilding the police force in D.C. We were considered a joke. We were one of the first police forces to enter into a consent agreement with the Justice Department, which is why you haven't seen a lot of these issues you've seen in other cities in D.C., which brings my next point, Steve hired at uh, the control board brought in Chuck Ramsey, and I kept Chuck Ramsey as your chief. And he continued building the department and, and uh, Chuck Ramsey really set DC out as a gold standard in managing uh, not only national security issues at a local level, but managing mass disturbances and protests. I mean, nobody better than Chief Ramsey. And then I give all due credit to my successor, Adrian Fenty. And Kathy Lanier, I think, you know, it's time for me to go. It's time for Chuck Ramsey to go. Adrian brought in Kathy Lanier, who was a fantastic police chief, to build on what Chuck had done. And one of the things that Chief Lanier did, which was just one of the many things she did great, was, you know, when there was a a death in Southeast, Chief Lanier would go and visit the family. She was a great chief, and she was schooled in all the areas of policing from special operations she was the 4-D district commander, so she knew all the nooks and crannies and ends out of just managing that community policing. This is, again, where you're building a virtuous cycle and positive momentum as opposed to negative and vicious, right?
2: What frustrated you the most as mayor? What was the thing you couldn't do that you wanted to do?
0: I would have cut back on some of the trips because people don't elect you secretary of state. They elect you mayor. I mean, I, read, I in retrospect, I would cut back on some of that. I think I felt it was important to showcase the district around the world and one of the things one of the reasons why I think the district uh, shortly after I left office was recognized as one of the number 1 places for real estate investment was because we are improving the fundamentals and letting everyone know. So I don't begrudge that but we could have cut back a little bit on that. Anything else? I, I really regret we really didn't spend enough time and effort on some of the remaining agencies that still bedevil us. Like you know, what, Tony. It's called the Regulatory Agency, DCRA. It's called Department of Consumer and Regulatory Affairs, uh, which is kind of Kafkaesque. You know, things like that still needed improvement. But overall, over the great arc of things, I have no regrets. Because what I think is I saw a great opportunity, you know, in the kind of course of history and the way economics were going and everything. I thought the district was poised for a great recovery, and it turned out to be so.
2: You decided after two terms not to run for a third. Now, you mentioned earlier that there's a value in change. In retrospect, did you leave too early?
0: No, because I think one of the reasons why the district's doing well is be, my successors, Adrian Fenty, Vince Gray, Muriel Bowser. This is part of a virtuous cycle. Warren Buffett talks about compounding in the economic financial sphere. Well, you know from being a public manager, compounding of good practices all creates great value over time. And we've had mayors who have been steadfastly supportive of good management, supporting the agencies, not a lot of foolishness, and it shows. From a personal level, Tony, and I've said this
2: to you before. I'm incredibly grateful that you brought baseball back to Washington, D.C. Can you talk about how difficult that was and how that happened?
0: When we first started out, you know, D.C. wasn't considered one of the prime candidates for baseball. You know, obviously your reputation lags, the fundamentals sometimes. You know, the district was getting better, but we were still considered a basket case. Baseball with Baltimore and, and some other cities was getting out of the suburban, you know, put the baseball park in the parking lot complex. But they were still a little leery of D.C. The first step was to get baseball to buy into bringing the Montreal Expos here, which we were successful in doing. Were you there in the first game at RFK? I was. People ask me, one of your highlights of public office, I go out there when they're bringing baseball back to D.C. for the first time, I had invited Bruce Babbitt, uh, former governor of Arizona, because we were playing the Diamondbacks. I invited the ambassador of the Dominican Republic because, as you know, all the way back to Juan Marichal, Dominican players have been a big, big part of baseball. He really appreciated being there. We were sitting in our box and they say, well, Mayor, we want you to come out to be introduced to the crowd. And I'm thinking, oh, my Lord, it's like one of these things where they're going to introduce a politician to the crowd. They're all going to Boo. Well, lo and behold, I go out there and they go, ladies and gentlemen, Mayor Tony Williams. And thirty-five, forty thousand 40,000 people give me a standing ovation for like two, three minutes. I'll never forget that. I felt like, you know, Lou Gehrig or somebody, you know, Willie Mays. It was unbelievable.
2: Well, my recollection, Tony, from the cheap seats uh, was that I was cheering as loud and as long as Mm -hmm. anyone. There was a lot of affection, not just for the fact that we had baseball in D.C. again, uh, but that you had done so much for the city.
0: yeah. Then the next step was getting support for a new stadium and big leader in baseball. We had some people in the upper echelons of baseball. Bud Sillig, the number two guy, was very supportive of us. And Jerry Reinsdorf of Chicago was a big champion for D.C. and decided that the site on the Anacostia River was the site for baseball. And people say, well, baseball brought all that development along the Anacostia River. We had already done a plan for the Anacostia River. I came in as mayor, and people would always ask me, well, how are you going to bring the city together? I told them, well, the best way, I think, to bring the city together was I'm going to find a big project that I think can bring the city and people around the community together. And in my our mind, the project to do that was the Anacostia River, because as it turns out, Bruce Katz at the Brookings Institution had written a report called A Region Divided, where he looked at regions around the United States where the metropolitan area was divided racially, economically. And true enough, the DMV, as we call it, District Maryland, Virginia, was really divided along all these lines, really regionally going right down the Anacostia River. So I felt bringing in a great planner, Andy Altman, development people, Eric Price, that we could create a vision for the Anacostia River that involved not only development but cleaning up the river and, very importantly, including citizens in the economic benefits from this development. So into this mix, you also added the baseball stadium, and it was just a wonderful combination. And you see the results all the way from the Navy Yard down through what are called the yards, the area around the baseball stadium. You're beginning to see it now farther down toward what's called Buzzard's Point and Fort McNair, the site of the National War College created by Teddy Roosevelt, Fort McNair to, and strangely enough, the Titanic Memorial, which I have never understood why there is a Titanic Memorial in the waterfront, but there is. And anyway, around there, the what is now the Southwest Waterfront and a new rebirth of that. So a lot of great stuff has happened. The challenge for the city, as in all cities, is promoting a climate for investment, economic viability, but doing it in an inclusive way in our capitalist system.
2: You were the mayor of Washington, D.C., on 9-11, on September eleventh, two 2001. Describe that day and that period in your tenure.
0: When 9-11 uh, came, it was uh, after a night I'd been a little ill. I'd just kind of been worn down by just countless events and whatever. And I was trying to take some time off that morning to kind of reconstitute myself when my wife uh, ran in and said that there was something on TV, a a plane had hit the World Trade Center. And I turned the TV on. You realize by looking at it, it wasn't a small plane. And then just as I was trying to collect myself, uh, the lady down the hall screamed and she saw the plane uh, flying into the Pentagon because we had a view across the river really focused myself as a mayor, you know, trying to, in the chaos that ensued, you know, constituting the emergency center and forging the right relationships with the federal authorities and, uh, you know, getting our apparatus in place, such as it was, needed to be improved. And one of the repercussions was we had to improve. But my initial reaction over the first three or four days was, you know, stay in uh, the command center make sure that organization, people, process systems were being put in place and let someone else do all the public speaking and all that. And then I realized that, uh, no, my job was not just uh, chief executive. It really was consoler-in-chief for a people.
2: That's not a role that
0: comes naturally to you, Tony. No, it doesn't. But uh, that's where I think a big, big part of being in any office, certainly being mayor, is to go from a meeting at 8.30 where people were telling you the world's ending— to uh, walking into a 9.30 meeting uh, where you have a group of school children who are visiting uh, the mayor's office and being cheery and delightful to these children. And in a way, you are acting, but that's your job. So you feel run down, you feel threatened, you feel fearful, but it's your job to get out of it and step it up and represent warmth and console, and a safe haven for your people. And I think actually, particularly when we had the anthrax attack, and I had learned my lesson from 9-11, and I think we did a good job with anthrax on both the execution front and on the messaging and getting our arms around our people.
2: The anthrax attacks came several months after the attacks of 9-11. And a number of the anthrax-laden letters were delivered to addresses in Washington, D.C. and and processed through Washington, D.C.
0: mail facilities. Because my mom and dad had worked in the post office, my mother said, well, why don't we go and visit a post office? So we went and visited a post office, and it turns out that that post office might have been contaminated. So my mom and I went down to the dispensary we had created with Homeland Security for prophylactic antibiotic And I'll never forget we were going through the line. My mother is in only the way she could, God bless her. She walks down the line and she says, honey, you better give me some of that because, you know, I don't want to catch Amtrak. My mother was great. Unforgettable line.
2: You now serve in a different capacity. You're part of the Federal City Council. You're its chief executive officer. What is the Federal City Council and what do you do?
0: Federal City Council was started with the lessons learned from a great group called the Allegheny Conference in Pittsburgh, the leading Corporations and families in Pittsburgh, late 40s, early 50s, decided, you know what, the rivers, the Allegheny, Monongahela, Origin of the Ohio, are a polluted mess. We got to clean up the rivers around Pittsburgh. And we need business leadership to inject itself into public policy to help make this happen and do other good things. Not a lobby for ourselves because we have that covered, but make a difference. And so, Phil Graham, who was then publisher of the Washington Post in the early mid 50s, did a series of articles about how Washington was in decline economically and at the same time was becoming a very unequal city. He created a group of the biggest players who would attack the biggest problems with the biggest impact where they could make the biggest difference. If they weren't really hard and there wasn't real consequence, if the non governmental leadership really couldn't make a difference, they weren't interested. But over the years, The revitalization of our Union Station, the creation of the Metro, uh, education reform, the control board, uh, the convention center, Verizon, Reagan building, major epical projects were sponsored and supported by the federal city council. And since that time, we've supported revitalization of Union Station, tax revision, creation of a policy center, refunding of the Metro, creating a coalition to do that, a lot of great stuff. So I, I love the Federal City Council and uh, the way we can fill the gap in public policy. Tony, D.C. residents have limited
2: representation in the House and none in the Senate. Can you say a few words about that, please?
0: Well, again, when uh, as I was mentioning earlier, when uh, Jefferson and Hamilton agreed to have the district, uh, the capital of government located where it is, uh, they talk about it in the Federalist Papers, the problem. Uh, created because a district would have no rights for itself. This is because on the way to locating the government in Washington, D.C., the Congress was located in uh, Philadelphia, I think, during the Confederation. There was a run uh, on the federal government by the Revolutionary War veterans, and they asked for help from Pennsylvania. And the state of Pennsylvania said, well, we kind of agree with the veterans. And so Congress had to get up and decamp and move to Princeton, and that's when they decided when they get down to Washington, D.C., they would be put the district completely under Article 1, the legislative article of government, the premier article of the Constitution, to immunize the Congress from all local affairs. But as some people alluded to, even Madison, yes, they were insulating the Congress from local issues, but they were then exposing the local people to all the whims and you know, peculiarities of the Congress, which is what has happened now. So any congressman who wants to try something, they can test it in the district. This has gotten better over the years, but the fact that it's a problem really is ridiculous and unconscionable. So Tony, talk a little bit about the life cycles of American cities. You had the cycle of explosive growth of the American city after World War II and the Depression. You had the second period of decline of the American city. Now, some cities like New York, certainly parts of it, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Boston are in the third stage of rebirth. But a city like St. Louis is still trying to get into that third stage. What
2: enables a city to go from the second stage to the third stage?
0: It's essentially getting renewal of the tax base, renewal of citizenship, uh, investment in housing and purchasing, business reinvestment, all those things that help create a virtuous as opposed to a vicious cycle. So the second stage was about, you know, racial distancing and federal policies and bad management and bad schools, all creating a vicious cycle. The new third stage, I would argue, is about good management and good policy and government policies that really support inclusion. And, you know, people's preferences changing because they're no longer afraid because you would appreciate this. Crime's gone down in the American city. You know, all those things have now brought a positive cycle. One of the things I'm proudest of is with Chief Ramsey and beginning with the control board, rebuilding the D.C. Police Department.
2: Well, you were an incredibly successful mayor, yeah. Tony. Do you miss it?
0: I don't miss the and uh, you know, backroom dealing and conniving and scheming, which are part of, you know, government. But uh, and that's just what the founders, you know, thought democracy would be. And it is. I do miss the fact, and it's a powerful fact, that when you're a local official, because you're responsible for so much that's immediate to so many people, you actually can visibly, concretely, tangibly help solve people's problems. I miss that. I miss making things happen. People say, oh, mayors just like to build things. Good mayors like to make things happen. Good mayor go down the third street tunnel and say, you know, this tunnel looks like hell. Let's clean up the tunnel. You know, you tell me your toilet overflows and a good mayor is going to be out at your house having a press conference about how we're fixing your toilet. I, it sounds ridiculous, but that's what a mayor's about. You're about the nitty gritty real problems of people. Thanks
2: to Tony Williams for joining me today. And Tony, if you're listening, and I hope that you are, thank you again for bringing Major League Baseball back to Washington, D.C., If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite app and write a good review. And if you have any thoughtful criticisms, feedback, or questions about this episode or others, please email us at theoathpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, theoathpodcast at gmail.com. Though I cannot personally respond to every email, please know that I read each one and that I definitely appreciate it. Thank you. The Oath is a production of NBC News and of MSNBC. This podcast was produced by the wonderful team at Fannie with Fannie Cohen, Nick Bannon, and Rob Aber. Barbara Rabb is our senior producer, and Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. Thanks to Archie Moore and the good folks at Clean Cut Studios in Washington, D.C. for hosting today's interview. This is The Oath of Chuck Rosenberg. Thank you so very much for listening.
1: Hi, everyone. It's Joy Reid, host of AM Joy on MSNBC. Did you know you can listen to AM Joy and all your favorite MSNBC shows as podcasts? You can catch up on The Beat with Ari Melber, The Rachel Maddow Show, The 11th Hour with Brian Williams, and more anytime on the go. Search for your favorite MSNBC shows wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe for free. Thanks for listening.